Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello everybody, today I am joined by Ivana Pavazic and Antoinette O'Connor, who will be discussing their project, Longitudinal Research Study of Familial Alzheimer's Disease. Alzheimer's disease involves a long asymptomatic stage characterised by a number of changes, including amyloid deposition, which is later accompanied by downstream neuronal degeneration and consequent cognitive decline. The pre-symptomatic period of Alzheimer's disease, with its sequence of potentially identifiable pathological events, opens up an important therapeutic window for secondary prevention at an early and potentially more tractable stage. To take advantage of this window, reliable biomarkers and sensitive cognitive tests are needed. The Dementia Research Centre, the DRC, has had a long-standing research programme in autosomal dominantly inherited familial Alzheimer's disease, FAD, led by Professor Nick Fox. And Ivana and Antoinette are both part of this centre. Today they're going to talk about how the study provides a unique opportunity to study the pre-symptomatic period of Alzheimer's disease as pathogenic mutations are effectively 100% penetrant and the age at onset is relatively consistent within families. So, Ivana Pasovic is a second-year PhD student and Antoinette is a clinical research fellow, both at UCL in the DRC. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Uh, Maybe we could start with the simple question, what is FAD and how is it diagnosed? So, FAD or familial Alzheimer's disease is an autosomal dominant or genetic form of Alzheimer's disease. It's responsible for less than 1% of Alzheimer's disease. As you mentioned already, it's caused by uh, genetic mutations that are effectively 100% penetrant. So that that means if one is a mutation carrier and survives long enough, one will inevitably develop the disease. Mutations are located in the genes presenolin 1, presenolin 2, and the amyloid precursor protein gene. Um, And actually the APP gene was discovered here in um, London back in the early 90s. Um, Familial Alzheimer's disease clinically is similar to sporadic onset disease, with the exception of a younger aged onset. Aged onset is typically under 60. And both are characterised by progressive impairment of episodic memory. To come to the second part of your question of how is it diagnosed, familial Alzheimer's disease can be diagnosed with a blood test looking for the genetic mutation. These tests are offered clinically for diagnostic purposes in those who have symptoms and a suggestive autosomal dominant family history. And by autosomal dominant, I mean every generation of a family is affected and those the risk of passing it on if one is a genetic carrier is 50-50 to your children. Um, Family members who are at risk can pursue predictive genetic testing. This requires a period of genetic counselling. So, and you're both focusing on slightly different angles of this, Mm -hmm. um, but both with with the aim of increasing the understanding of FAD and the changes that occur. Uh, Could you maybe go into the details of your individual projects, Ivana? Sure. So, um, I guess my projects... Um, have two aspects. One, I'm trying to study the early cognitive changes in this cohort. Um, I'm working with one task um, that was first designed by Yoni Petrov from Israel and um, it's actually a 
a cognitive function that we use every day. So if a person has to remember whether they've taken a yellow, round, pale or a long white one, they need to bind that information on the color and the shape. Um, and every time someone makes a cup of tea in the kitchen, you need to remember where those specific objects are. So you bind that identity and location. So... Um, They've designed um, some tests, which I, I'm now um, looking at longitudinally to see how th this performance, uh, the performance at this task changes when a person approaches their expected age at onset, which is the age at which their parents um, develop symptoms. And um, a lot of studies have suggested that this function is um, impaired quite early on, which is the main reason um, to use it. And then another side of of my PhD is mainly looking at the later clinical features of FAD, which are often undercharacterized or not well characterized because it's difficult to follow individuals um, over time when they lose capacity. Um, so those are kind of the two aspects of, of my PhD. So I'm working on a project that's trying to improve the reliability of biomarkers for detecting and tracking change in pre-symptomatic disease with the hope that that will accelerate translational research and improve clinical trial design, particularly trials in the pre-symptomatic stage. So one of my projects is looking at the utility of tau pet um, in pre-symptomatic Alzheimer's disease. So I'm doing a longitudinal study uh, study to see how that can track change over time. Um, like Ivana, I'm also looking at early neuropsychology changes, carrying work on work done by Phil Weston, who is my predecessor on the familial Alzheimer's mm -hmm. disease study at UCL. And he looked at accelerated forgetting and found that that can detect by that can detect changes earlier than standard cognitive measures. By accelerate forgetting, I mean the process where new material is learned and retained normally, but then is forgotten at an abnormally rapid rate. And um, so I'm carrying on this cross-sectional work to do a longitudinal study to see not only can this detect change before standard measures, but also is it better at tracking change over time. Um, and I'm also doing some collaborative work with Neil Ox to be on using event-based modelling to determine the sequence and time of um, cognitive change and preclinical familial Alzheimer's disease and in this will be including accelerated forgetting but also measures so um, subjective cognitive memory complaints and more standard neuropsychology measures and also again carrying on some of Phil Weston's work uh, with Henrik Setterberg looking at blood biomarkers um, of Alzheimer's disease so Phil um, published on the utility of cross-sectional um, neurofilament light and pre-symptomatic Alzheimer's disease and then I was um, a co-author on, on a longitudinal paper showing that it can track change pre-symptomatically and I'm hoping to continue this work and maybe look at other blood biomarkers like plasma amyloid potentially. So you said at the beginning um, that familial Alzheimer's disease represents less than 1% of the population of Alzheimer's disease? Or Yeah. yeah um, so obviously then the, you're using this cohort of people to study because you can sort of track them from pre-symptomatic because you know with 100% penetrance they will get Alzheimer's disease mm -hmm. but does that translate to sporadic cases of Alzheimer's disease? 
So yeah, that's that's a really good question and a really important, um, really important point. So, in fact, lots of the research into familial Alzheimer's disease has informed much of our knowledge on sporadic Alzheimer's disease. So, as I mentioned, the discovery of the London mutation um, for in amyloid precursor protein back in the early nineties was central to the the development of the amyloid hypothesis, and has really managed to accelerate research on that front. And from work in both the local study here at UCL and also part of the multicentre study of familial Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's, Diane, we found that amyloid builds up in pre-symptomatic Alzheimer's disease up to 20 years before symptom onset. And then this was subsequently found to also be the case in sporadic Alzheimer's disease. And work done by um, Nick Fox, who's my um, supervisor on hippocampus, he did work in hippocampal atrophy as part of his clinical fellowship with um, this very same cohort and found its ability to track change in familial Alzheimer's disease and now it's a well-recognised outcome measure in sporadic Alzheimer's disease. And in addition, there's also a similar clinical profile. So the majority of cases in both sporadic onset Alzheimer's disease and familial Alzheimer's disease begin with mainly episodic memory impairment. Now, there are atypical phenotypes. However, that occurs both in sporadic and familial. And um, we've, you know, I think this we've begun to see even in more recent research, for instance, I mentioned neurofilament light earlier, we've seen that this increases both in MCI stage in sporadic AD, but also in pre-symptomatic familial Alzheimer's disease. Now, obviously, there are important differences and a big part of our work with looking at cognitive changes in sporadic Alzheimer's disease, you have to disentangle the effects of Alzheimer's disease from ageing, whereas that's less of an issue in familial Alzheimer's disease due to the younger age of onset in, our, mm. in the cohort. So, because so, you said uh, the age of onset is, is typically, typically under, under 60. 60. Yeah. So 60 isn't counted as old? <laughs> No, exactly. And some, okay. of, some of the onset in familial, it's some of the pre one mutations have an onset as young as 30 in their 30s. Okay. So, but mm. if that has, while it obviously is a, an important difference, it does mean that there's less issues with comorbid pathology. So there's mm-hmm. less comorbidities and such as vascular damage. So it's very pure Alzheimer's disease model mm. in a way. Actually, sort of coming back to that, Ivana, you said that you're looking at... Um, Early, t- early cognitive changes, but because you can look at it longitudinally, mm. you can also, because you sort of know the parents' age of onset, yeah. you can look at the to the offspring and say, yeah. you're coming up to that age, can we see any changes? Exactly. And is it actually quite reliable saying, you know, the parents got it at 59, mm-hmm. the children will also get it at 59? I think it's a tricky question, but in general, yes, it's quite reliable. I think there have been studies showing that it's not always the case Mm -hmm. Um, but it's actually quite reliable which is why it's um, a great model um, of AD and why it's so um, yeah interesting to look at performance of individuals that are approaching their AD onset because that's when things normally start to change in terms of symptoms Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah it's quite reliable okay but you said that the amyloid build-up can be sort of starting 20 years before age of onset so Mm. You know, if someone's getting it at 30, that's, you know. Yeah, so there is, there's one of the biggest studies, um, kindreds of familial Alzheimer's disease is in Colombia where there's a pre and E280A mutation. And they they have done some work on how there may even be structural changes before before adulthood because the age of onset that mutation is um, is one of the younger younger ones in the 30s um, or early 40s depending there's a bit of a range but as Savannah said the 
parental age of onset or the estimated years of symptom onset is reasonably reliable. There's been a big review by Ryman in neurology in 2014 that did show it had a pretty good correlation. So. Um, so with the similar clinical profile between sporadic Alzheimer's disease and FAD, is there actually any difference though in the clinical profile between the different genes affected? So you've got presenilin mm. 1 and 2 and... So that's a really good question. So that's been a big focus of research, actually, by another predecessor at um, at the Dementia Research Centre, Natalie Ryan, and she published quite a, a detailed um, review in Lancet Neurology um, on this on this topic and how there are important phenotypic differences, and that that is important to explore because it has important implications for implications for understanding of the pathophysiology of disease. So. Um, and there's been other work also the DRC done previously looking at different atrophy patterns. So we know that amyloid precursor protein gene carrier, or the APP mutation carriers, tend to have more medial temporal lobe atrophy and thus typically more present with episodic memory impairment, whereas presenile mutation presenile carriers, it tends to be more of a cortical pathology and that can affect presentation. And also even within the presenile and one mutations before and after code and um, 200 behave differently with atypical phenotypes being more common after codon 200. And is that why then it affects people younger because yeah. it's affecting a different area of the brain? Well possibly not just the location but it there's probably to do with the the pathophysiology and the link between gamma secretes and its ability to cleave APP and the Processivity of enzymes and how devastating a mutation mm. is um, is probably an important implication. There's been some very nice work by Lucia Chavez Gutierrez, who I'm probably not pronouncing right, but in Leuven, who worked in Bart Struper's lab, looking at age of onset and enzyme substrate um, binding and how that can affect age of onset. So it's it's definitely an important area, and I think more exploration of that area will provide some important clues into potentially therapy, therapy design. Yeah, just to add as well um, that it will probably inform better patient care as well if we know um, a bit more about the different presentations within genes. Yeah. Yeah, so about the, the sort of the patients, is there any support out there for those affected or living at risk mm. of FAD? Um, I think there's still a lot to be done because it's such a rare condition. Um, but the Diane um, studies... Um, so both the observational and the trials one have various forums and they have a really um, useful Facebook group that a lot of our research participants often mention. And then um, I'm also one of the facilitators at Rare Dementia Support, which is a UK-based charity which aims to provide um, advice, information, guidance on a number of different um, rare dementias, including FAD. And part of the work we do is to make sure we're signposting people to relevant organisations such as Young Dementia UK and Genetic Alliance. So I think there is there is some support out there and there's still a lot to be done um, as well in raising awareness because when you increase awareness of certain conditions that inevitably increases the support as well. Um, and actually there's a new project that's going to soon start led by um, Professor Seb Crutch um, because at the moment a lot of the support that we provide as part of our dementia um, is telephone-based and um, information to websites, whereas I think the plan is to create a centre where people can go and have one-to-one -one discussions and perform different activities. So there is stuff out there, still a lot to be done. Hopefully we're heading in the right direction. And so less than 1% obviously counts as rare. Hmm. Um, what other types of dementia 
are sort of bound up in the rare yeah. types. So posterior cortical atrophy, so PCA, is um, a dementia that normally um, affects the way you perceive the world, so vision mainly. Um, there is also FTD, so uh, frontotemporal dementia that I'm going to be um, oversimplistic, but um, affects behaviour um, and social, social behaviour. And there's actually a genetic form as well, known as FFTD. And then PPA, um, primary progressive aphasia, um, affects language mainly. And there are different subtypes um, where people have difficulties understanding the word or pronouncing it. Um, and I think there's a new um, group opening up soon, um, with um, dementia with Lewy bodies, which isn't as rare, but that's something that they're also planning to do soon. Um, I think those are the ones, yeah, maybe forgetting one, I hope not, but yeah. <laughs> and how's your research going at the moment? Do you actually work together on any parts of your research? Mm-hmm. or? Um, so we we do work together, um, which is great. <laughs> She's great. <laughs> She's really nice. Um, it's actually quite funny because the first two months that we started working together, I couldn't understand her accent. I'm Italian and she's Irish. And I just had to... Nod and smile. We nod and smile. And then I think I'm getting better at it now, which is helpful. Um, yes, yeah, so I mainly do the um, cognitive assessments with um, participants. And then Antoinette um, does more of the clinical and MRI yeah, I bring, do some clinical assessments and bring bring participants to scan. But yeah, it's a very collaborative process. Yes. It's, a, it's a fairly small cohort of people, given the rarity of the mm-hmm. disease. So you will be working with the same patients. And, yeah, yeah, and Which is really same nice. families that yeah. have been seen actually over the years. So yeah, my well. my supervisor will have seen the parents of people that I'm oh, gosh, seeing. Yeah. Now. Well, and you said about genetic counselling could you elaborate a bit more on what that would mean for the patients and so um because undertaking a pre-symptomatic test is obviously a, a big a big deal because it has huge implications for one's own family one's children one's future planning um it's not off genetic tests for pre-symptomatic individuals aren't just offered as a blood test people have to be fully informed um, of the implications um, before a test is offered when one's pre-symptomatic so um, um, family members can undergo a referral to a genetic service and they go through a period of counselling sessions with a genetic counsellor before they decide whether they want to have a test and often people after having a few sessions will decide actually maybe this isn't for me and the majority of participants in our cohort don't have a genetic test at the moment because there are no effective treatments and people prefer generally the majority prefer living at risk but there is this opportunity to have genetic counselling and then a percentage do go on to have the test and find out their status and um, that afterwards there is a, a visit as well after that to see how how they're doing with that information. Mm-hmm. Just to add that it would have to be referred via the GP. So if an individual is thinking of a genetic test or genetic counselling, it has to go via the GP. And it's okay. a genetic service, not a neurology-based yeah. mm-hmm. service. Yeah. Um, have you had any difficulties with your research? This is a favourite question yeah. of ours. <laughs> I think it's tricky to talk about difficulties when um, you're just working with such an amazing group of people and mm-hmm. some of the people that we see are our age as well um so it's it's just amazing um how much dedication and 
they're just great. Um, so the only difficulties I would mention are technical problems that we sometimes have. Yeah. So an MRI running late in your case or um, just computers not working. Um, yeah, practical things that happen and you just want to make sure that you're making use of time um, for the person there as well. And then in terms of research, I think research in general just takes time and there can be delays, <laughs> which is just um, part of academia. So yeah, I think the normal amount of difficulties probably in my case. Yeah. You know, when the person working with you can't understand your accent, it's always a bit of a disadvantage. But yeah, no, I think you know, research is really rewarding and we're so fortunate to work with these families. They're incredibly dedicated um, and really genuinely inspiring. But I I come from a clinical background and I guess when, you, when you're working on a hospital ward or an outpatient clinic, it's quite easy at the end of the day to say, you know, I've seen these people, I've achieved these things and there's mm-hmm. more of a tangible, rapid reward, whereas... In research, it's it's a longer arc, and you know, I remember after the end of my first year, going, you know, what on earth have I achieved, <laughs> and what am I doing here? Um, but you know, then then things happen. You know, you get presentations, you start to see the data coming together, and then it becomes quite exciting. But it is definitely a, a slower slower burn. Because mm. you're doing a PhD. I'm doing a PhD. Yeah. I'm I'm funded by the Alzheimer's Society, doing a clinical research training fellowship, um, and it's great. They're great. I was recently at their conference in London, which was really interesting, and they're they're great funders, and it's a great opportunity to have you know ownership of my own project and getting to look mm. at this kind of these areas. Um, with this, with these amazing people, so I'm I'm quite lucky to, to have the opportunity. Yeah, I guess when you see patients in outpatient clinics, you don't really see the whole journey. Whereas you've seen these people, you'll see these people for three, four years, however long your PhD is. And yeah, and exactly, and also because we have, you, you get to you know learn the stories of their families yeah. and how because a lot of the, you know, when their parents are being diagnosed, it was when familial Alzheimer's disease was being discovered. You know, and yeah. like I. One of the people I see it was their mother who wrote a letter to John Hardy, having seen a notice in the in the Alzheimer's Society newsletter back in the nineties, and saying, "You know, there's something wrong with my family. This keeps happening," and and to continue to see them and to have that history mm. and to know how it's evolved. And you know, everyone who comes, they're not only a research participant, but a lot of them are carers for their family mm. members, and you yeah. get a real insight into not only the difficulties of living at risk or with the knowledge that you're a mutation carrier, but also the the fear you know the dealing with being a, a carer so it's mm-hmm. a real overview of the condition yeah. um, and finally where would you like to take your research given infinite funding and time <laughs> I think um, yeah making sure that there is enough accessible support for people while you try we try to find a treatment um, I think more of the funding should probably go there um, and also of course just more money for clinical trials that will hopefully work and be disease modifying and not only because um, neither symptoms. of you actually work on treatments do you you're both looking at the I as I part of my role do some assessments okay. on a on a treatment trial that, that's on, ongoing for, uh, it's the Diane to you treatment trial okay. for familial Alzheimer's disease but I'm a, a teeny tiny cog in a very large m- machine for the, for that um but yeah I think you know having seen the devastating effect of this condition in families what well, I really hope that my research contributes yeah. at least a little bit towards you know the search for a cure and, and proper mm-hmm. trial design at a pre symptomatic stage that will lead to an effective 
you know, treatment. Yeah. We've got a great window of opportunity. Hopefully someone can use it properly, yeah, soon. <laughs> well, thank you both very much. Um, I hope you've enjoyed chatting today. <laughs> you are welcome. Um, so that's it's time to end today's podcast. I'd like to thank our panellists, Ivana and Antoinette. And you can visit our website to look at the profiles. And if you have anything to add on this topic, please do post your comments. And uh, finally, please remember to subscribe to this podcast through SoundCloud and iTunes and Spotify. Spotify. <laughs> please also share and post your review. Thank you. This was a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher. Everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.